Hello everyone, I'm Jeffrey Smith with the Institute for Responsible Technology and I have a unique way to introduce my friend Dr. Chuck Benbrook. One of my closest friends in the research of GMOs that I, in these 25 years was Dr. Arpad Pustai, a friend of mine from Hungary who was the world's leading researcher in his area and discovered incriminating evidence about GMOs. So I was hanging out with Arpad when he was in the United States and I introduced him to Chuck and then left the room for a while. I came back and there was this beautiful smile on Arpad's face and he said, this man is my kind of scientist. <laughs> <laughs> so I have never forgotten that, Chuck. Yeah, that, was the, that was high praise from one of the great scientists. And I looked at your background and I understand, I mean, you have had over 50 peer-reviewed studies published in 12 different areas. So you are rare in the ability to put things together. You've worked uh, high in Washington as, a, as the as senior staff of a subcommittee of the House Agriculture Committee. You've worked as, as the chair of the board of the, um, uh, what is it, the National Academy of Sciences Agriculture Group. So many different areas, been research professor. But what you do is you put things together. And what I'm so excited is today, we're going to see some conclusions that narrow-minded scientists cannot create because they're in their little areas. But you have put together a deep understanding of the evolution of the pesticide tragedy, where GMOs fit in, where, where herbicide resistance fit in, and where the next generation stands at risk, and then, some incredibly simple solutions to get out of it. So first of all, Chuck, I've been wanting to say this for 20 years, you're my kind of scientist. <laughs> uh, well, uh, thank, thank you very much and glad to have a chance to talk to you about our commentary that recently came out in the uh, peer-reviewed journal, Environmental Health. So I don't know exactly which way I wanna go in, but what I think we should start where there's some research, some very important research that you're running and leading that I think was strategically brilliant, choosing that research as the linchpin that's going to create a revolution to fix everything. So let's talk about that. Well, to fix everything, I'm not going to yeah, overstate it. To fix lots of things, Chuck. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I mean, it, it, it doesn't take in-depth research to recognize that weed management systems in the in the midwest are unraveling um they're they're failing um because of the spread of glyphosate resistant weeds and weed phenotypes that are in fact resistant to multiple families of herbicides that in the past worked well and so the 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 problem of herbicide resistant weeds is not new uh, and it and it has plagued um, farmers around the world for almost a half century but the 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 scale and scope and speed at which the the uh, glyphosate resistant weeds have uh, spread uh, really around the world not just in the United States is is completely unprecedented and the the reason is because the the 
back in the in the 1990s the the pesticide industry was investing heavily in the tools of biotechnology and they discovered ways to make corn soybeans cotton seeds resistant to the broad spectrum herbicide glyphosate um, and so they they uh, gained approval and commercialized this so-called Roundup Ready system. And it, it was such a dramatic improvement in the options that conventional farmers had to deal with weeds. And, you know, one thing that most people don't know is that weed management for corn, soybean, cotton farmers is actually the most difficult part of growing their crop. Uh, they, they have adequate tools to deal with other pests. Uh, other pests come and go, but weeds are a part of every farmer's um, management system every year on every field. They're just, they're always, they always have to be dealt with. So when this Roundup Ready system came along, which allowed farmers to spray over the top of a, of a crop, uh, the broad spectrum herbicide glyphosate, it turned one of their most difficult and challenging and costly management tasks into the simplest one. And, and one that you, they, they almost couldn't screw up because, you know, if, if they, if they sprayed their roundup uh, on the field and let's say it rained two hours later, they could just go back the next day and spray again. I mean, it was it was a very reliable, robust, and simple system. And that's why it went from, you know, being new on the market to over 90% of the acres of soybeans and cotton uh, planted to Roundup Ready varieties in like six or seven years. It just, there's never been a major technological change in a a major row crop, uh, you know, grown in the United States that that happened that dramatically and that quickly. But the speed at which the technology was adopted that contained the seeds of its demise, because there was so there's been so much selection pressure now from glyphosate imposed on on weed populations that. Over time, you know, four or five years, uh, uh, first weeds that are less sensitive, and then after a few more years, weeds that are fully resistant, they evolve. And, and that's, that's why we started the Heartland study, uh, which is a birth cohort study in the Midwest, our 13 states that make up the, the Midwest Census Bureau region and Arkansas, where um, herbicide use has been going up uh, dramatically starting in the, er the early 2000s. Uh, and, and so not only is herbicide use going up, but farmers are being forced to go back to some old chemistry, high-risk chemistry like 2,4-D and dicamba. And, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it, it's a significant concern. Um, uh, uh, you know, what, it, what corn and soybeans are grown on it, 170, 180 million acres every year. It's over half of U.S. agricultural land is planted to these two crops. They are the backbone of our food system. And the fact that that the the way that farmers control weeds is is um, 
failing now, uh, and uh, it is is hugely worrisome. And and so we we started a a clinically based birth cohort study to try to determine whether this increase in herbicide use and exposures are triggering more frequent or more severe uh, adverse birth outcomes, um, which could include uh, birth defects, autism, ADHD, preterm birth, low, low birth weight, uh, uh, deliveries, et cetera. And uh, we're, we're uh, the, 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 our clinical research is ongoing. We're enrolling pregnant women in the first trimester of pregnancy. And we feel fairly confident that in two or three years, we will have some solid answers. Well, this is amazing because, I mean, I remember where you were the source for all of our information about the actual increase in overall herbicide use because of the herbicide tolerant crops. So for the years, years and years traveling around the world, I quoted 256 million pounds increase in the first 16 years or the first 13 years. That was your research. But yeah. you're taking it way further. Not only have you been tracking the accelerated increase, but you've understand you understand the mechanisms why and now you're looking at the impacts on the next generation so before we get into the details of that study and also a little bit more about the what you're calling for a solution please tell people where they can go to follow your research as it develops because you are very prolific and the information you put out is a is really relevant and sometimes astounding. So please give the details sure. where people um, can find it. The, the, the website of the Heartland Health Research Alliance, it's www.hh-ra.org. And all of our peer-reviewed papers are, are, are available there. And we have a, a very uh, detailed bibliography where you can search um, search against endpoints, search by pesticide. Um, there's, I, I think we've got eight or 900 papers in the bibliography, most of them uh, full PDFs available. So anyone who is interested in learning more or conducting their own research on pesticides and birth outcomes and reproduction, uh, you know, are welcome to use our bibliography as sort of an on-ramp into the literature. Uh, we, the Heartland Health Research Alliance, you know, we have as one of our missions, of course, conducting uh, new clinical research on key public health issues at the nexus of farming systems and health. Uh, but we also have uh, a significant and have made a significant commitment to education. One of the things that you know, I'm sure you've run into in, in your career, uh, as, as I have, is the um, general lack of, of just basic knowledge about how uh, crops and food are grown and processed uh, in, in, the, in the U.S. And, and you know, I think as agriculture becomes more uh, technologically sophisticated uh, as the science becomes you know more and more fine-grained a lot of people just they, they kind of zone out and 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 they they feel they they can't keep up with uh, the 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 science or the concepts and so they 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 kind of just don't don't even try to understand what's what's going on and so, 
we want to explain to people, just regular people, not scientists, for example, what is a heritable epigenetic change? What the heck is that? Um, it's not something that uh, any adult in the United States was taught in school because it's a, you know, epigenetic changes have only been recognized for the last 10, 15 years or the impacts on the microbiome. I mean, none of us use, we're aware of the term microbiome or its importance in our health until the last five years or so. So we, we um, put a lot of effort into Ooh. making contemporary science accessible to uh, the general public. You know, I just realized that I think I'm running this on the wrong page. I'm running it on my personal page instead of the Institute's page, uh, which means that we're going to have to rebroadcast this again on the IRT page. But let me just tell um, my team that that's where it is so that they can um, okay. find it. I'm so sorry. Um, we may have to do this again with your next update. <laughs> um, here we go. Yeah, so I, I'm afraid I did it on the on the wrong page. Um, so when we find the results of your Heartland study, and people go up in arms, and they want to make a change, what are some of the practical solutions that you have to shift us over to lower pesticide um, intensity? Well, you know, I, I think that um, our goal, the goal of the Heartland Health Research Alliance is to, is to uh, help farmers uh, recognize and pursue safer ways to control weeds, safer for the farmers and their families and their neighbors, uh, safer for the critters that live in and around uh, uh, you know, farm fields, uh, safer for the, the birds, the bees, the fish. Um, and that, that uh, the, the path to safer ways uh, of controlling pests, it doesn't necessarily result in less use of pesticides overall. Often it does. We definitely want to reduce the use of, of hazardous ones, ones that are known to cause either environmental or public health problems or both. And, you know, un unfortunately, uh, there, there remain in, in common use on American farms, uh, you know, a, a dozen or so pesticide active ingredients where the science has been pretty clear for many years that, that they, they do pose significant risks for those people who are who handle them and apply them or live near where they're being sprayed, take the the, the herbicide Paraquat. It, the connection between Paraquat and Parkinson's disease has been written about in the scientific literature for over twenty years, and the uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation, which is a major funder of Parkinson's disease research has steadily supported scientists in um, conducting state-of-the-art work on the precise mechanisms through which Paraquat triggers or causes 
Parkinson's disease in in the human population. And the, you know, it it the the um, the degree to which that mechanism is now fully elucidated, published in the peer-reviewed literature, replicated by different uh, research groups is 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 really uh, amazing. <laughs> and yet the 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 US EPA in its infinite wisdom has just decided to re-register it for another uh, 15 years. Um, and and, and they, they've, they've done it, they've done it because the data that they have on paraquat and its impact on the brain and the neurological system is uh, primarily from registrants with meaning, studies meaning were, the company that produces paraquat yeah, the, the does the research that, and then gives those research and we've seen from monsanto's the monsanto research how it rigs research and hides evidence and uses the wrong statistical methods and the wrong detection methods and non-existent control groups that are imported from historic data etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah so i mean uh you know a a a, a chemical company a, a pesticide company that has a uh a profitable, well-established product like Roundup, glyphosate-based herbicides, paraquat-based herbicides, chlorpyrifos insecticides. They, they, they have invested in that molecule and developing that market for 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, paraquat came on the market in the, in the early 60s. Uh, and, you know, they, they've created an, you know, an entire supply chain from where they get the precursor chemicals to uh, formulating the end use product that's ultimately sold to, to, to farmers or other weed managers. They've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in, in the, the science that's required to meet regulatory requirements. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they are, um, all of the companies are determined to uh, present to regulators studies that support continuation of the uses. That's what they do. That is their goal. And they've gotten very good at it. Um, so the, the one of the huge problems with contemporary pesticide risk assessment and regulation is that the science base on which it depends is largely controlled and produced by the companies that stand to benefit from the continued sale of the products. And, you know, it it's taken me a long time to, to really realize it, but so if, if, if you're a, a Monsanto in the case of Roundup or Syngenta in the case of Paraquat, um, you, you know, you're, you're not going to design a study and submit a study to the EPA that supports canceling the use of your pesticide. You're just not going to do it. Um, and if you, if you look over the history of pesticide testing and regulation, it's very difficult to find even a single example uh, of a 
contested regulatory action taken by EPA on a pesticide that was based on the data submitted by the company. All right, let me, you know, I, I challenge anybody to point to one example. The, the pesticides that have gotten in trouble and have, have been either restricted or banned have, have, have uh, experienced that fate because of independent science that scientists in academia or in research institutes or government scientists have done. So our, the, the nine co-authors of our commentary, one of the, probably the single most important recommendation in our paper is that going forward now, both in the case of a new active ingredient and the initial toxicology data package that's done on a new food use pesticide and the, the updated newer studies that are done in the course of, of re-registering an older product like glyphosate, like Paraquat, should be done by independent scientists that don't have any financial uh, job, uh, ideological, connection or commitment to the industry. They just need to be regular scientists that want to, want to do good, honest science. And so that, that's, that will change things dramatically. And Jeffrey, it, you know, it's the bill, the, the, the amendment to the federal insecticide, uh, fungicide and rodenticide act, uh, FIFRA to bring that change about, you know, it, anybody could could write the 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 legislation in 30 minutes it, it's just it's a very simple change and and it's also one that isn't going to cost any more money you know the the right now the the companies pay for the studies that they control so you know the the lights have to be turned on in the lab and the the mice and rats have to be fed and you know, it, it costs a couple million, two or $3 million to do a two-year cancer study in, in rodents. And, and now the, the companies are, are paying that money and controlling the research. And what we're calling for is the EPA should increase the, the fees that they, that they already charge for processing an application. You know, it's, it's a pay-to-play you know, situation with most regulatory agencies uh, at the federal level and the state level. If you know it, the 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 people petitioning regulatory agencies to do something, they have to pay some fees to support the process. So what we're recommending is that is that the the Congress pass a simple amendment that uh, increases the fees sufficient to do that basic. Uh, there's about about 10 talk studies that form the, the core basis for uh, conducting uh, a pesticide risk assessment, a human health risk assessment. Just increase the, the fees to, you know, with the fair market value of what those studies cost um, and let the, let the EPA, uh, I don't know if they partner up with the National Science Foundation or NIH to do a competitive grant program, but the, 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 the federal government knows how to um, support independent research uh, in, in, in academia and research institutes. They put out a request for proposals and they specify the studies that need to be done. And then people that feel that they've got the experience and, and, and 
facilities to to conduct the studies they they compete for the grant and some of them get it and so it, it's this it's the same money is going to get spent or roughly the same money but instead of uh having leaving the companies in total control of how those studies are designed how the studies are conducted and how the the results are statistically evaluated uh you know at each one of those those critical parts of a of a toxicological study there's there's a wiggle room there there's uh, opportunities to um tilt the outcome in, in, in a direction that that the the uh the, the companies feel will will quote unquote support what they're asking EPA to do. So this is this is a huge this would be a huge change. It's a change that's being debated around the world. Europeans are talking about it. The people in Asia are are, are talking about this change. And you know I I hope I live long enough to see it uh, put in place. I, I think it's inevitable that um, the the degree to which the companies have learned how to sort of game the system now and make sure that they conduct studies and submit results to regulators that support the decisions that the companies want the 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 scientific community is learning about this um just in the last few years uh with a degree of clarity that has not been the case in my 40 year career of working in this area. And the reason that this is coming into such focus is the, the, these major uh, court cases that, um, that allow scientists that don't work for the companies that aren't affiliated with them to have access to their internal communications their internal documents where the scientists in Monsanto talk about how can we design this study that we have to give to EPA? How can we design this study and carry it out in a way that it's going to support our ongoing uh, registrations? And uh, Jeffrey, it is remarkable what these companies put in writing. I know it's I found it shocking. And um, I've interviewed Brent Wisner, chief attorney. I've interviewed Carrie Gillum. I've interviewed uh, a number of of the uh, attorneys associated with this. And it's as if Monsanto was completely convinced that they would never have to turn over their internal memos. So they're talking about ghostwriting. I mean, they found that the absorption rate of Roundup into human cadaver skin was 3.3 times the allowable level. So they they cooked the skin, then froze it, and then applied the Roundup to that leather-like human cadaver skin, and then told the EPA, without mentioning the cooking or the freezing, hardly anything gets absorbed. Look the other way, squirrel. And the thing is, it would be interesting, you know, I, I want to support you. I want the Institute for Responsible Technology to support your goal of putting that into FIFRA, to rewrite it so that the money that's, that's um, spent on the research 
is done by independent science. We know that the regulatory agencies are captured. Some of those same Monsanto documents, you were a test, you testified at some of those trials. You're deeply aware from your own experience, having worked in government, et cetera, that we can't just go to the EPA and say, come on, let's all have a good time and do it right. It's gotta be a, con a congressional mandate that pulls the EPA captured organization out from any choice associated with it. Right. And in order to convince the congressional uh, representatives, I'd love to see, to show them exactly how the chemical companies rigged their research in the most stark and, and incriminating ways, yeah. then show how the approval costs money on all these different sectors, health, um, dead yeah. zones, the microbiome. The I mean, you're an agricultural economist, and I don't know if anyone has ever calculated the actual cost of the herbicides, the pesticides used in the United States on the entire ecosystem and human health. But yeah. if we could show these elected officials the blatant lies by companies like Monsanto, and then the impact that those lies have had, then we can say, no, how are we going to correct it? Not by simply chastising the EPA, but by, or chastising the companies, pulling yeah. it out of their um, ability to manipulate and then requiring very specific third-party evaluations. I read in a blog that you're, you're posting this week that the requirements by the EPA for assessment done by the companies we're not even state of the art in the 1980s. Right. So that's a demonstration of right. willful abdication, not just scientific uh, ignorance, willful abdication. Right. But Jeffrey, let's 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 just you know in the in the interests of of a, a, a fair treatment of the history, let's go back to the early 1980s, and there was a huge scandal around fraudulent pesticide testing at a industrial bio, uh, bio testing lab, IBT. Right. And uh, the basically, this was a rapidly growing private lab that was set up to produce science that the drug industry and the chemical industry, including pesticides, needed to submit to regulators. It was a time when new regulatory requirements were being imposed across the government. And so this company, IBT, set up shop and started uh, doing these, <clears throat> these animal studies. <clears throat> they grew very rapidly. They grew faster than they could sustain quality research. And the whole thing came crashing down uh, in 80, 1982 and 1983 because of a guy named Dr. Adrian Gross, who was a pathologist that worked for, uh, had worked previously for FDA, but moved to EPA. And he was assigned to the part of EPA that inspects laboratories that he, he's, he was one of the scientists that went and inspected laboratories to see if they were following, quote unquote, good laboratory practices. So, you know, kind of the, the um, imprimatur of, of proper and carefully done science. So he, he 
realized that this this company was cooking the books, just making stuff up, uh, you know, taking dead animals out of a cage and putting a healthy animal in. Just things that 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 were, I mean, they were beyond unethical. They 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 were illegal. And so it was a huge black eye for for the pesticide industry. And as a result, Congress pushed EPA to get even more uh, serious and thorough in establishing exactly how studies had to be done, what it meant, what good laboratory practices were. And so if, if you go into the Federal Register to, to read about the two-year mouse cancer studies that the pesticide companies have to do, I mean, it's laid out in, in incredible detail. And, and it, the EPA did that as in response to this breakdown and failure of the system. But the, the, the downside of it was it, it took about 10 years to get all these regulations, uh, protocols for how to do the studies on paper, through the rulemaking process and in the code of federal regulations. But once they're there, science stops. That's how the studies are done. And, and so by the early 90s, there was a profound bias in EPA, in the Office of Pesticide Programs, to any science that was done on a pesticide that didn't follow their guidelines and adhere to their good laboratory practices. And, and so what was done to assure quality science and weed out truly fraudulent labs like IBT locked the science in place. Right. And, and that's, that is a huge problem because uh, the underlying sciences that support pesticide risk assessment are rapidly progressing. Uh, we can now, we can now, identify markers of disease, either biochemical markers or genetic markers of disease. Uh, and, you know, for example, the paraquat Parkinson's disease connection. There's a group of scientists at the University of Arizona with long-term funding from the Michael J. Fox Foundation. They have a set of markers that, that will identify who is going to get Parkinson's disease and roughly how many years before the uh, disease will progress to the point where they'll be diagnosed as you have Parkinson's disease. This is like amazing new science. And, and th th there was no sense that this could be done 10 years ago. And now in, in August of 2021, the, this team published a, a high impact paper in a scientific journal, and they laid out here are I, there were six or eight markers, molecular markers, that uh, taken together reliably predict whether someone is going to get Parkinson's disease, and and reliable sort of reliably predicts the the reason that an individual gets it because you know not everybody that that gets Parkinson's disease gets it for the same reason or in the same way. 
the human body is incredibly complex and it's our interactions with our environment is what makes pesticide risk assessment so incredibly complicated. Um, so, so now EPA has just uh, re basically renewed the registration of Paraquat for conceivably 15 years. They, they put no weight, zero weight on this, this new science, these new markers. Um, they're not requiring uh, the, 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 the primary manufacturer of, uh, of Paraquat, which is Syngenta, uh, not requiring them to do anything. They're not, uh, they're not having the uh, National uh, Institutes of Health in, in, the, in, in the part of NIH that funds work on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. They, they haven't requested that uh, federal research dollars be, be um, invested in applying these markers now to, to fine tune them and sort of calibrate this system of recognizing Parkinson's disease years before someone would be diagnosed. This kind of science, Jeffrey, it's happening across all of the, the things that cause morbidity and mortality in the human population. Uh, obviously, COVID and, and uh, coronaviruses are the what's getting the most focus in the last two years for, for obvious reasons. But but uh, the, the progress that's being made with non-Hodgins lymphoma, uh, prostate cancer, uh, the metabolic diseases, autism and ADHD, these big, costly, worrisome uh, causes of, of uh, an individual not having a full and healthy life. Uh, we are, scientists are rapidly um, gaining detailed understanding of what's causing them and the mechanisms and the markers. And, and this new science, it's, it, it should definitely be applied systematically to understand the health risks of the most widely used pesticides because the whole entire American population every day is exposed to pesticides in their diet unless they're rigorous and eat a 100% organic diet, which very few people do. And certainly only a small percentage of the US population could, could do it because of the, the limited supply of, of or, or organic food. So, you know, this, this um, bias and unwillingness of the Office of Pesticide Programs in EPA to take advantage of this new science, which is, it's not being developed in the companies, it's being developed in universities and research institutes. They, they, they have to open the door to, to these scientists and this new science to bring pesticide risk assessment, you know, um, from, from the, you know, sort of not really cutting edge science in the 80s, you know, let, let's bring it up to date 50, you know, advance it by 50 years. But that's going to take, you know, that, that, that is, believe it or not, a very complicated thing to accomplish. Because the, the study protocols and the requirements and that govern the, the studies that EPA requires the pesticide manufacturers to do 
they they are they're codified in the code of federal regulations many of them have been litigated so there's there's court records uh, uh that that uh have resulted in certain changes in how the studies are done you just you just can't snap your fingers and 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 change that so there has to be an understanding in congress and action by congress to direct the epa to um create mechanisms for modern science to routinely be used in the pesticide risk assessment process and it, you know that that'll take it'll take at least five years if not 10 years from the day that congress says you have to do this epa and here's the money to do it for it to actually be done and and be uh materially improving the science base of pesticide risk assessment is like i said it's five that's five or ten years down the road and that's if the industry is not able as they usually are to influence the process uh in their favor because they have so much power and so much money to spend on on you know, uh, sending their scientists and 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 universities, uh, you know, academic scientists that are friendly to the industry, uh, to uh, advisory committee meetings, uh, to submit comments. I mean, the the depth of the science that EPA has to master to uh, significantly restrict or ban a, a widely used. Um, pesticide that's been on the market is i mean it's it's hundreds of millions of dollars of of science and scientific in, inquiry that supports that i mean i can remember back in the day uh i was in uh at a pesticide industry meeting in north carolina with research park triangle which is where at that time i think it was novartis the precursor company to today's syngenta and their big their big uh pesticide was a herbicide called atrazine and at, at at that time uh it had been shown that that atrazine is a a factor a risk factor for breast cancer in human females and um the uh novartis was carrying out its defense of atra of atrazine against this new science that was being published in prominent widely respected peer-reviewed journals and there was a there was a reception and there was a whole cluster of syngenta people that were having an animated conversation about what syngenta or novartis was doing at the time to defend atrazine and the the woman that was the senior corporate official managing the defense of, of atrazine she said to this group we'll spend 100 million 200 million in a year defending atrazine whatever it takes we'll spend it and and, and you know she was being just being she was being straightforward and honest with people that you know they they know what they 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 would figure out what science they needed to generate to keep EPA from restricting atrazine. And they figured that out, they paid for it, and atrazine is still on the market.
in the United still- States, but not in Europe because they didn't right. have the, the leverage in Europe. Now we're towards the end of our of our conversation, and I just want to reflect on on something that sort of verifies what I had said in the beginning. You are an expert as a scientist in the science. You're also an expert at the regulation. You're also an expert at the influence of the of the corporations on the regulation. You also understand the mechanics in Washington, having worked at the House Committee and National Academy of Sciences. And you're in a unique position to see all the dominoes, how everything connects. And within that, within that, you've even published recently showing that, you know, switching to our switching the 1.2% of American agricultural acreage from fruits and vegetables would reduce the overall pesticide burden on American consumers by nine over 95%. Ridiculous information that no one knew what you were able to do. And with all of those things, you're, you have identified the Heartland study as like a key leverage point. How do we actually move the system? If we can show that the next generation is going to be suffering from autism and ADHD and these other markers, right. then that may be the bell that's heard around at least Congress to get to be able to overcome the one to two hundred million dollar expenditures and to make the yeah. changes. So look, look, Jeffrey, our whole team hopes that we do not find clear evidence that today's rising levels of herbicide use and exposure in the Midwest, which there, there's no question about that, that 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 piece, those pieces of the puzzle are are known they're 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 documented we don't know there's a lot of things that are impacting pregnant women and the 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 health of the fetus as it develops the delivery process and then impacting that critical first three years with that little that tiny newborn uh baby you know becomes a you know uh a fast talking fast walking three-year-old uh, th- there's many things that that are impacting the that the, the the journey that every new person on the planet goes through from conception to adulthood, and you know we we see reasons and evidence in the literature to expect that there might be some serious population-wide adverse effects uh, occurring that could, for example, shave two or three or four IQ points off the average baby born from 2010 to 2030 or 40 when farmers finally realize they got to get off this herbicide treadmill. They, they, They can't just keep spraying more and more and more as resistant weeds become more prevalent and more serious. That's, that is what they are doing. They excessive reliance on herbicides created the resistant weed problem. And it was in the pesticide seed industries, best interest in terms of profit to put all of their most of their their seed breeding investment in creating these herbicide tolerant varieties so that 
farmers could spray more easily spray more herbicides on these fields that have uh, resistant weed prob a new resistant weed problems. You know, I over the years I I use I have used many times the analogy creating multiple herbicide tolerant corn, soybean, cotton varieties so that farmers can spray more to deal with resistant weeds. It's it's kind of like pouring gasoline on a fire to put it out. It's just, it's fundamentally flawed. It's a fundamentally flawed tactic. It's it's bound to fail. You know, and it is failing. And, you, and you so know. that that's to, to me, you know, I in my lifetime, you know, we've gone from you know, 15 or 20 herbicides in the 70s that were used on, you know, there there was significant reliance even in the 70s on herbicides, but no, nowhere near the degree of reliance today. So, so, so in, in the, in the 70s into the 80s, the average corn, soybean, cotton farmer would, would apply only one herbicide and some of them would have to apply two. Well, now they're up to four or five, and a, for some of them, two applications in a year, and, and so that's so you know just think that's only in a in a fifty year period, if, if with with the, the 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 need going up on, on a trajectory like that, I mean the the companies are are filing patents and developing uh, corn, soybean, cotton varieties that are that are genetically modified to resist six, seven herbicides. You know, where at, at some point, all of these transgenes that they're they're cramming into the breeding lines that will, you know, will have, I think, already are having an impact on the ability of a corn plant, a soybean plant, a cotton plant to, to defend itself and respond to the standard uh, biotic and abiotic stresses, you know, uh, from drought to uh, heat, to extra moisture, to weeds, to uh, nematodes, to uh, diamondback moss, all of the, all of the threats that can, um, reduce yields in, in, in a farmer's field, the, the, the genetic capacity of the plant to defend itself is the most important part of pest management after, after all. And yet by, by using biotechnology to alter the genome in, in so many different ways, it's, it, it is undermining the inherent ability of plants to stay healthy and you know it's it's the kind of thing where i i think most most of the plant breeders in the industry know that this is happening they're they 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 can see it in how their varieties behave but you know they they've got farmers on this trajectory of increasing the number of seeds planted per acre i mean back in the 70s there was 18,000, 20,000 uh, corn plants on an acre. That how many? That's how many seeds they would plant. Now it's double that. The average farmers in the high 30,000, some of them over 40,000. So, you know, the, the, there's, they're, they're cramming more plants in a given square foot of, of soil. There's less soil for each plant to extract 
nutrients and water from that increases the vulnerability of the overall crop to either too much water or not enough water and and the the, the system the system is just becoming less and less uh robust and um I, I think that that there there are many people involved in row crop agriculture, from farmers to scientists to people that that you know work in the support industries, that that they 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 know they they see what's happening and they're concerned. But the solution that the industry always comes up is buy something you know a new chemical, a new GM crop spray more of this spray more of that and it they have convinced the american farmer that if you're a modern farmer if you're a sophisticated farmer these are the technologies that smart technologically sophisticated farmers utilize and yes as i said at the beginning that when roundup ready uh seeds came out in 1996 they worked incredibly well it it was absolutely clear why they were so successful in the marketplace but just a couple of years after they came on the market academic weed scientists were saying hey you know if farmers plant roundup ready soybeans one year roundup ready corn the next year back to roundup ready soybeans four or five years there's going to be resistant weeds and they were right yeah, it was four or five years so, in 2001 the very first yeah, 2001 so and and it's just i mean it's gotten immeasurably worse since the first roundup resistant weed was found in that no-till soybean field in delaware right then 2004 was the next huge milestone uh, uh, glyphosate resistant marstail and palmer amaranth by 2010 private sector surveys were showing that about a third of the acres in, in American agriculture had one or more resistant weed problem. That's that's 2010. Now it's probably 80% of the entire agricultural land base has one, two, three resistant weeds that are part of the landscape now. And that's that's why the the that, that's why we're in such a, a a critical kind of turning point. If farmers don't back off of this herbicide treadmill that they're on now, and bring what's called integrated weed management practices in, in back onto their their fields, in in a, there's going to be a three or four or five year period when none of the herbicides work anymore well well enough to control weeds so what are they going to do then uh, and um that's that th that that actually it already happened in the southeast in several areas you where know, roundup ready cotton and roundup ready soybeans were were rotated they got to the point where they were having to, to hire crews of people to go out into the fields with hose and and try to try to to pull out the the Palmer amaranth plants that are as tall as you you and I, uh, a plant that sets four hundred thousand seeds, one yeah. plant. So if was, you have the king one, the, yeah, one. If, and, so and, if, and and it could break the tires of the tractors going over. Uh, it was it just people were buying machetes yeah. down there as well. 
Now we're going to end it here. And I just want to, if you could remind people of the address where to go on your website. And I want to say, when you're there, take a look at some of these publications. Because as you heard earlier, um, Chuck is, is, says it's people need to understand it. And a lot of people's eyes just glaze over when they think about agricultural science. If you look at the way the abstracts are written on, for example, the two papers that came out this year, it's so easy to understand. It's right. such a relief. Yeah, yeah. We we try to we try to make the science accessible to people, uh, and so again, visit visit the Heartland Health Research Alliance website, uh, www.hh-ra.org, and right. you'll, you'll post it on your a link on your website. Oh yeah, it's actually already on the it's on the uh, description as well. Well, enjoyed the the chat um, and. Um, uh, best of luck with your ongoing work, Jeffrey. And we'll fear, we'll look into ways to support creating new laws and not simply going to the EPA asking for it to reinvent itself, but to go to Congress. Uh, since we're working with Congress yeah. in our Protect Nature Now campaign, we'll yeah. we'll we'll uh, we'll put our heads together on that. Thank you so much. Good. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Live Healthy, Be Well. Please subscribe to the podcast using whatever app you listen to podcasts with. Or go to livehealthybewell.com to subscribe. This podcast will inform you about health dangers, corporate and government corruption, and ways we can protect ourselves, our families, and our planet. I interview scientists, experts, authors, whistleblowers, and many people who have not shared their information with the world until now. Please share the podcast with your friends. It will enlighten and may even save lives. Safe eating.